0: Brain go br- 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 brrr. ta um Brrr. Brrr. in me Did you hear her? My name is Gus. And my name is Eva. And welcome to the Phenomena Podcast. This week, we're going to be concluding the necromancy series that I badgered Eva for months. Yeah. <laughs> <Not> totally teasing. <gasps> um, yeah, we're finishing the necromancy series today. Um, Which isn't to say we won't be revisiting it and its themes many times over.
1: You can't leave necromancy behind if you're talking about the paranormal and the phenomenal.
0: Mm -hmm. Which is
1: not what that word means. But
0: Necromancy. It will never leave you. (laughs) Remember when that was uh, Panama's tourism slogan and everyone was like, you're canceled because that's also how they express trauma in Spanish. I don't. Do not remember this. I don't know any of what you're talking about. Okay, From Panama, start to finish, I'm puzzled. It will never leave you. Maybe it was Costa Rica.
1: How can a country that you do tourism to? How can their slogan be "It'll never leave you"?
0: Literally, that's why it was so weird. Ugh, oh my god, why can't I find it? It will never leave you. Tourism slogan problematic. Problematic delightfully bad tourism slogans around the world yeah it's panama it will never leave you okay (laughs) i don't know i think that's funny it's amazing it will never leave you so yeah necromancy it will never leave you we're not going to be leaving it the dead they'll never leave you That, that could be the phenomena exactly right that could be our tagline the dead will never leave you yeah, it's a little Poe, little po. too. The dead will never leave you, because it's like, at least if they're dead, they'll never leave me. Oh. Oh. In their tomb by the sounding sea.
1: So for those of you who've been keeping up, you may remember that last week we were covering necromancy in the medieval period. Mm, yes. Honestly, one of my favorite episodes we've done in a long time. I feel like it was so interesting, and I'm really excited to pick up where we left off, so to speak.
0: Oh, so we left off kind of coming to the new world. We mentioned the Salem Witch Trials. I don't think we'll go into that. We're not going to go into those today, really, Mm -mm. because.
1: What, you don't know what the Salem Witch Trials are? Why are you listening to this podcast?
0: Yeah. um, Gatekeeping. (laughs) Girlbossing. (laughs) (laughs) Gaslighting. No, uh, we'll, we'll talk about them another time. Also, the Salem Witchcraft Trials weren't as much, um in line with the sort of themes of necromancy as the ones in Europe that we mentioned. Um those were there weren't really accusations of raising the dead. Wasn't really like strictly
1: Yeah. It was a very different relevant. thing about witchcraft. And I don't think we've really set ourselves up to have success talking about the underlying themes and like kind of cultural moments that the Salem witch trials have provoked. They're really worth their own
0: arc. So we'll get Fox. to it. We'll get to we'll it. We'll get to it. Okay, yeah. So <clears throat> oh, so before we get into it, which we're going to start with Francois Machendal, before we get into it, I do want to say, I know, we know, we at the Phenomena Podcast acknowledge, uh, I was going to say Anne Mourn, but I actually don't know what his political beliefs were. Um, we're talking about Haiti this week. As yeah, we're talking about episode. Haiti this
1: week. And, and this,
0: yeah, go for it. No, go for it. Okay, We're talking about Haiti this week and we'll talk about we're going to be talking about Haiti a lot um, and specifically civil unrest in Haiti and how that gave birth to a whole new definition of necromancy um, and a lot of cultural threads that are still being pulled to this day. But we also want to acknowledge that another thread that developed at this time in Haiti is destabilization and Haiti's basically hasn't been st- Properly stable since, which is ultimately, you know, a tragedy and a failure on the part of both the United Nations and at large um, other countries and communities in the world that took advantage of Haiti's resources, its position, et cetera, et cetera, and sort of more than sort of did leave it in the dust um, politically, physically, et cetera. I mean, the French even. (laughs) The French even. Really, if you want to be really specific.
1: The French even.
0: International sugar producing
1: uh, corporations even.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, and the the president of Haiti was assassinated earlier this week. So we just didn't want to come on the episode and, like, be sort of silly about magic killing the heads of state of Haiti in the year 1791 without acknowledging that, you know, the reverberations of these events continue to cost lives. I mean, Haiti still is suffering from after effects of the earthquake and of the cholera outbreak in 2010. Um, If you feel so inclined, there is a Haitian humanitarian organization called, uh, nose. I'm so bad with French. It's called our little brothers and sisters. Um, and they run not non-for-profit hospitals and orphan orphanages and youth homes for at-risk abandoned and orphaned children in Port-au-Prince. Um, and they're not like one of those massive predatory international charity orgs. And they've taken on a lot of extra work. Since COVID started, there were a series of orphanage fires in Port-au-Prince. It's just, like, all so sad. But um, if you feel so inclined to check out their website and see what you can do for them, they have volunteer programs and accept donations and publicity.
1: And speaking of publicity.
0: (laughs) And speaking of publicity, Francois Machendal. Tell Um, me. Tell me everything. So Francois Machendal. Um, was a dude, no, (laughs) Francois Francois Macandal was a, a Haitian, a leader of the people in Haiti. Um, he was also a Vodou priest, um, which even now Vodou priests are sometimes called Makandals. I assume after him, or it's some kind of chicken and the egg thing where he is named that because he was a Machendal, but I believe it's named after him um and there's conflicting reports as to where he was from and when he was born um obviously there's not records of those things but he might have been from mount atlas um which is in north africa or more likely he was probably from senegal or mali um but he did speak arabic so that's one of the reasons people thought he was um from mount atlas mm-hmm. So there's not great records of when he was captured and brought over, or, um, but he was enslaved in um, Haiti, and he was known for being learned as a priest, right, in a couple ways. So this is – he's a great example of where several sort of syncretic religious – interactions on a big scale are coming together because he was Muslim um he spoke Arabic he professed uh, his Muslim faith but he was also influenced by the French Catholic influence in Haiti which was, mandatory by the way um it wasn't just like oh that's interesting it was mandatory um
1: yeah so at the time we're talking early 1700s right at the time haiti is a french yes. slave colony in which they're yes. producing mass quantities of sugar and sugar cane yes. on plantations as part of the french economy
0: yes just yes and they have missions there and when uh uh when when people are captured and brought to Haiti, uh, they have to be at this time baptized into Catholicism within eight days, um, or there's many many punishments, um, and it's forbidden to it's forbidden to pr- practice their own West African religions, um, which includes Islam, but also includes uh, Vodun and like Yoruba spiritualities. Um, And it should
1: be noted at this point in terms of spirituality and religion, the French system of transatlantic slavery differed from the American system of transatlantic slavery in many ways, as they all did. Um, People think of transatlantic slavery often as like one unified theory of enslavement. Mm -hmm. But in fact, there were a variety of different, uh, every, every nation Every, like, colonizing nation did it differently. Right. And the French part of Haiti, and I mean, this was common in the Caribbean, was they brought, like, in America, slaves were, or enslaved people were brought over. And then they sort of semi-had families and reproduced. And in the Caribbean, oftentimes, slaves were brought over worked till they died and then more were brought over right which is horrible (laughs) and I don't mean to say that flippantly but it's part of why the introduction of African religion was such a hotly contested and highly debated thing because these religions were not just brought over generations ago and then passed down ancestrally these people were brought up in West African religious tradition and practice and then brought to Haiti
0: Absolutely. That's a really good distinction to point out. It's not – there aren't homes in which West African religions are being practiced amongst enslaved Africans in Haiti. There's waves and waves of new – sorry, thunderclap um, (laughs) – waves and waves of new people who practice these religions coming over. And Makandal was one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, So one of the things that Makandal is famous for – and and also one of the first things that sort of one of the first identifiable practices that could be easily criminalized is the creation of potions um, Mm. which the French would refer to as poisons Um, so he was very knowledgeable of these potions or poisons and he helped organize um, a, a big group of enslaved Africans in Haiti, um, to make these potions and to, um, sack plantations and poison slave masters, uh, as well as like, uh, lives, as well as livestock. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Couldn't remember the word livestock.
1: Yeah. Like water, like they would put it in the water supply. Right.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yes. They would put it in the water supply and notably at this time, ob- uh, maybe not obviously, but seemingly obviously. And the enslaved African people in Haiti were not allowed to drink from the same water as even the animals. So it was relatively easy to poison water that uh, livestock and white people would be drinking without poisoning any of the enslaved people. Um So that's what he's known for, and it actually went off pretty well for a while, and then people who had been poisoning the water obviously were being captured, I don't know why I keep saying obviously, they were being captured um, if they were caught, and tortured and killed, and he was given up eventually. Somebody mentioned that it was this guy, this, this voodoo priest, Makandal, who had taught them instructed them in how to make these poisons and administer them.
1: And this is part of the Haitian Revolution, right?
0: So this is about 50 years before the Haitian mm. Revolution. This is sort of um, – this is the Shay's rebellion of the Haitian Revolution yes. kind of. Yes,
1: so – it would be this, then French Revolution, very end of the 1700s, yes. and then a Haitian Revolution,
0: right on the heels,
1: right on the heels. Okay. Yes.
0: Good. 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 Exactly. Good timeline. Thank you. So this is, uh, yeah. So so when so they did eventually catch Makandal, though there are some um, there are some accounts, there are some lore that say that he escaped and that he's still alive today. It's very common in um, Vodan traditions the idea that people bestowed with a certain amount of power or with a certain amount of knowledge can live for many, many years. Marie Laveau, notably, has been alive for about the same amount of time, about 400 years. Um, So maybe he's alive. But according to French accounts, he was caught and he was burned alive in 1758.
1: If you remember our last episode, Common Punishment for voodoo common oh well i guess we didn't really cover voodoo in the last episode but common punishment for witchcraft and for necromancy was the burning alive
0: exactly so that is one of the places we can really see a tie because or or a connection because now with our current system of punishment of on behalf of the state um mostly things are the same right you are going to a prison um And it might be for a different amount of time. You might be subject to different amounts of security, different uh, permissions, et cetera. But essentially, the punishment is that you go to prison. But a great way to look at how different acts were viewed historically is to see what the punishment for them was during these eras because there was still a strong connection of sort of like an eye for an eye. There's like a matching of the punishment to the crime or a severity of the punishment to the severity of the crime. So at this time, they were also hanging lots of people, but that would be for things like piracy and treason. Right. Whereas the burning to, says to us that not only was a spectacle made out of it, which spectacles were made out of hanging too, so it was more than just making a spectacle. It was also a desire to um obliterate his body completely and to consume it in fire which was generally considered to be somewhat cleansing of um black magics so it's a it's a very clear match to the way that they burned necromancers in europe
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and it's interesting thinking about and this we'll get into this
1: as we go over the course of the episode but the connection to voodoo and the fear of dead bodies and the fear of what a dead body may do and what may happen in death. I know, and I know this from a class I took in college where we talked a bit about this, that there were some forms of necromantic practice practiced by, I think, hoodoo priests that Mm -hmm. produced a death-like sleep that would convince those who examined the bodies that those who had received this potion or this like kind of um, tincture were dead and then they were able to rise from the dead in freedom because they'd been declared dead. This was like an escape from from slavery attempt at a certain point in the Americas, especially in North America. And I think that the fear of that and the fear of dead bodies and what they could do and what they could contain as well as the base biological fear of the disease that spreads among bodies is very, very present in this account.
0: Right, absolutely. So the two things that bring us from Mach, well, many, many threads bring us from (laughs) Mach and Doll to the Haitian Revolution in terms of voodoo are poisons or potions, um, the idea of a death like sleep, and rising from the dead again. It's very difficult to summarize the Haitian Revolution this quickly, but essentially it was very long very bloody. I think it was over 10 years, 12 years, 12 or 13 years, very long, very bloody. And it involved a lot of other countries also. So Mm -hmm. Spain got involved, the United Kingdom got involved, which at the time was us. Um, Well, first it was Great Britain, then it was the United Kingdom. Like other governments went through severe toil during this time and different factions of those governments lent themselves to opposing sides. So Spain was even on two different sides Mm -hmm. of the Haitian Revolution at different points um, during the 18th and 19th centuries. And the independent empire of Haiti wasn't established until 1804. So it was a long time. It was very complex but one of the things that was a great fear of everybody on the island and involved in the war had to do with the overwhelming number of dead that were there so the french slave masters were very fearful and this is a this is a documented fear across all colonial bodies of the the handful of white slavers who are present compared to the thousands upon thousands of enslaved people. Mm -hmm. So they already know when they get to the island that with any organization among the enslaved people, they're doomed. Right. So that was part of the reason why practices like drumming, singing, other community practices that centered around religion were forbidden um, because in addition to the fervent evangelical nature of French Catholicism at the time uh, there was also a very real fear that if given any chance to organize within their own communities enslaved people would easily be able to take the island.
1: Yeah, I mean they outnumbered them 15 to 1, 10 to 1
0: yeah. yeah. There was
1: just no question. I mean, it was, you know, it was an obviously on its face, unsustainable and completely barbaric, inhumane. Yeah. I mean, we know this, but just in terms of what it would mean to be not just a slave master, but one of the plantation or colonial administrators or body members, even if you weren't in direct right. contact
0: with. Right. You'd be like a tax collector.
1: Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, somebody's wife or daughter. I mean, they were all... They were all participating in this system, and there were very few of them. And with that, I think, with that fear of organization amongst enslaved people came an intense fear of anything that might give them any form of power. So this is why we see all these laws about them not being able, like enslaved people not being able to possess anything that might resemble weaponry, why comings and goings from sugarcane fields in this case or you know cotton fields in the american south would have been closely monitored and any access to anything that could have been used as weapons was closely scrutinized where they slept was closely monitored and closely watched and of course they weren't allowed to receive any form of education because that was a form yes. not just of like you know liberal empowerment but it was a, it would it was a form of weaponization. They could have used it as a form of revolt and organization. And this is something that was obviously And they did. Yeah, and they did. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: That was one of the things that made Macandal so terrifying to the French was that he was not just literate and knowledgeable of multiple languages. He was extremely adept mm-hmm. in multiple languages. Mm-hmm. Um, And he was effectively able to organize people who had nothing except now from him, this knowledge of poisons. Yes. Um, The religion was one of the things that was absolutely banned from
1: any form of congregation or like collective worship. That's part of the drumming and singing, all of those things. Because especially the Catholics truly, as we've talked about in previous episodes, feared magic.
0: Yes, deeply. They
1: believed in it and they feared it. And they understood the potential and the possibility of West African religion. And I mean, I'm sure they didn't understand what it was. And I'm sure they looked down their noses at it, many of them, as it being, you know, barbaric and backwards yes. and inhumane. But they were also terrified. Yes. They were terrified of these people coming together and using magic against them. Rightfully so, because as you say, they did.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. As you say, they did. Um, so they did. And so after the Haitian Revolution, which, again, we're skipping a ton of really nitty-gritty and fascinating um, history, but in terms of magic, after the Haitian Revolution, a new sort of necromancer starts to show up in books, in folktales, in scary stories that you tell at the campfire. And that is the idea of a person who can administer a poison to somebody and that that poison will cause that person to fall into first a trance and then death. And then after being dead for a short period of time, that person will rise again, not necessarily come back to life. They're not alive. They're still very much dead. They don't have... The ability – they no longer have the ability for independent thought, but they are trapped inside the head of their body, and they are now subject to the whims and commands of that person who poisoned them. Mm -hmm. And they are – they are eternally sentenced to carry out the commands of this person. right until their body literally decays or breaks down completely. Which is interesting on a million, million levels. Right. And this is the major change in the idea of necromancy that happens. One of the things that's interesting about this is I think that it's the first time we really get to hear from the now formerly enslaved African people that live in Haiti about what their fears are. Right. Because we've heard a lot about what the French fears are that you can read through all of time, but there's not a lot of representation of the feelings and the concerns of African Haitian people until this. Because what could possibly be more scary than not realizing you had drank a potion that would render you first dead So subjecting yourself and everyone who loves you to your death. And then after that, enslaved permanently to the whims of this necromancer. Mm -hmm.
1: And this, maybe you can clarify this for me a little bit. This will come to be what we think of as a zombie.
0: That's correct.
1: Does it come out of voodoo originally? Voodoo, the religious
0: practice? So, sorry for the loud Pepsi noises. (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) Bibsy, gula. Um, So, yes, it does. So, it comes out of voodoo, the religious practice, which really quick, the difference between voodoo and hoodoo in the simplest terms, which is often... um, Whatever. In the simplest terms, hoodoo is the English version that's happening in America. Voodoo is the French version that's happening in the Caribbean in the simplest, simplest terms. So it does come from voodoo in a way. But the way that it comes from voodoo is goes back to the very first episode when we talked about vodun and we talked about the distance that the soul has to the bo- uh, has from the body right. or the distance that the soul the physical space that the soul occupies so at the very core of voodoo voodoo is the idea that humans are made of clay and water and that these are two I'm s- simplifying severely but and that these are two spirits that represent the personal self sorry the plosive the personal self and the communal self. Let me read you a really beautiful little thing about that that I took down in my notes. So this is from The Vodun Way of Death, which I'll have in the show notes if I get around to them. I'm so sorry. I've had a really busy couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> the Vodun Way of Death, which is by Leslie Gérald Demarle, I think. That's oh, just my best guess. Okay. First, humanity is created from clay and water, and hence is composed of the same composite elements which constitute the world around it. Death is then the dissolution of the body. By its burial, it returns to the ground, after which it reappears at another time as the ancestors reshape it. And Mawu, remember Mawu, Mm -hmm. gives it new life. Second, humankind is basically divine. Each individual lives in a community where he manifests certain personality traits, yet also partakes of the conscious experience of life as a member of a clan. Not a word i use. He is closely bound to all peoples insofar as they all share in the same divine source, the same destiny, and trace their heritage to the same mythological ancestors. A person's divine and physical elements are thus united, the divine being a centripetal force which draws to itself other selves in a relationship in which subject and object are often no longer distinguishable. Mm. Instead of I think, therefore I am, Dahomeans, which is not a word we use anymore. It's uh, the region of Africa now known as Benin, might say, I participate, therefore I am. Which I think is really just a super cool yeah it's very moving nugget. it's very moving so the second one that's in there which is a quote from an anthropologist called oj oldham i did not make that up his name is o j old ham
1: <laughs> what do you and want for he's...
0: breakfast oj old ham that's what
1: they've got at this bed and breakfast i don't know what to tell you
0: Oh, my God. That's so funny. O.J. Oldham at the B&B. <laughs> exactly. So O.J. Oldham says says of um, the Vodan tradition, We become persons in and through our relations with other persons. The individual self has no independent existence, which gives it the power to enter into relationships with other selves. Only through living intercourse with other selves can it become a self at all. Another really beautiful quote. Truly. So I wanted to pull those because I wanted to circle back to the introduction to Vodin that I gave in the first episode, where there is essentially the human self and essentially the divine self. And there is a divine self inside all things. Mm-hmm. And that we might call a spirit in English that is probably the easiest term for us to reckon that. Um, and in the we've talked a lot about early resurrection, uh, when we talked about the Greek tradition, because of the idea that the spirit could be still close to the body. So here we have that again. Mm-hmm. The idea is that, and oh gosh, hold on. Click, clack, click, clack. So in voodoo, Mm. (laughs) in voodoo and vodun, and still in Haiti to this day, there are people who practice this. Very many people. There is a belief that when the body is buried... The spirit only remains dead or with the body or in the earth for about a year. And then a year after somebody dies, that's when you hold a funeral. Um, And there's a separate rite that has to do with sending the spirit on into the collective divine essence um, that is inhabited by the ancestors and also all other divine essences. And that gives essence to new things that come into being. Mm -hmm. So for a year after you die, you could, in theory, be fully resurrected. Right. But this poison or this magic that would create a zombie would render you without divinity. Mm. So it sort of traps your human self is bound to the earth and your divine self is bound to the necromancer in a way that stops you from being able to continue the cycle of life and afterlife that would ordinarily happen in half-Catholic, half-voden Haitian voodoo. Right.
1: Okay. I follow. I follow. So we're seeing the rise of anxiety about this after the Haitian Revolution. We're seeing the rise of this in Haiti. Are we seeing the rise of this amongst white folks as well?
0: No. Interesting. Interesting. So, this is very much, which is why I think it's so interesting and like one of the first. I'm trying to say it in like a way that's not heinously mean, but it's like one of the first honest representations in folklore of the real fears and experiences. And I say fears because fears and anxieties are a tool that right men are. are sorry, are an experience that write many, many stories. Right. And that's the stories that we read as anthropologists who study ghosts is mm-hmm. we read these stories that are written by fears and anxieties and challenges and grief. So, so the story we're reading here is a fear, a, a grief, first of all, for the thousands of people that have died. And then also a fear that you may return to this state of being enslaved that you and thousands of other people have just spent over a dozen years dying for. Right. And that was so heinous and incomprehensibly hellish.
1: Yeah, and I mean, part of what I've read about enslaved people coming over. I was just reading Zong, which talks about this somewhat. Um, There is a lot of evidence in the record, which a lot of black studies and scholars of slavery kind of, there's a lot of debate about it, of course, but about Mm -hmm. what death truly meant to enslaved people and just how many enslaved people chose death rather than, chose to live and be enslaved, especially in Haiti and on the journey to Haiti and during the Haitian Revolution, there was strong religious belief that to choose death was to choose to be reunited with your own cosmology and your family and your loved ones. And that it was, you know, it was was a a radically different understanding of death than the Catholic anti-suicide
0: position. Thank you for bringing that up because that, also speaks to, I assume, where what you're saying is, like, even death might no longer be safe.
1: Right. Well, the scary thing about those, about becoming a zombie is not just that you bring the dead – it's not just that you see the reanimated body that is, like, bound and enslaved once again. It's also that, yeah, exactly. As you say, death is not safe. Like, the final rest that has been granted, like, this final relief – your loved ones actually do not reunite with whomever they may reunite with. And they're actually not part of the ancestral cosmology anymore. They're still earthbound and yet they no longer have the will to make any kind of choice. And that's like this sort of ultimate
0: betrayal. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's deeply disturbing that the spirit could not return could not return to the other spirits. It's deeply disturbing as an idea. So that also highlights the point which I want to make clear, which is that Haitians don't fear zombies. They fear becoming zombies. Right. The fear is not... The fear we know of zombies, which let's talk about that, the fear is that you might become a zombie, not that you would be attacked by a zombie. Right. The attacked by a zombie thing didn't really come until about 150 years later (laughs) or almost 200 years later. Um, In the meantime, we have American spiritualism. We have continued development of voodoo and hoodoo in the United States, though they also continue to be somewhat of an illicit practice because of continued stigma. Um, also during this time, circling back to a trance-like state that imitates death, Um Victorians very, very much feared trance-like states that imitated death and being buried alive, which allowed the zombie myth to proliferate throughout America and make it to Europe because of this shared anxiety of the idea that something could come back out of the grave. Um, there was also a lot of vampire panic at this time. And at this time, vampires came back out of the graves of dead people that you knew. They weren't like living in a castle yes. at this time. Um, and a lot of this was due to heavy opiate use, which can put you in a trance that mimics death. And many, almost all of the recor- actual recorded non-f- non-fictional examples of being buried alive were due to opiate use. Yeah. Go on. Smoke an opium in a den. We've talked a lot about spiritualism and the way that they contacted the dead. hmm you can listen to the other episodes about that. Mm-hmm. That wasn't really considered necromancy so much. So let's move forward to when the zombie became what the zombie is today.
1: Absolutely. I think I think when we say zombie now, the image that is conjured is one that is a little bit closer to, say, like a Walking Dead zombie or a video game zombie, which is basically – a reanimated corpse which moves mindlessly in pursuit of cannibalism yes the cannibalism element it's important to note was not the original that's not what being a zombie was in the imagination that we've been talking about in the haitian tradition in this understanding that is not what it was to be a zombie a zombie was as we've said, a body which was being controlled by the will of another, essentially. Yes. An undead body being controlled by the will of another. And interestingly, here, I'm going to pull up my notes.
0: Please do pop off.
1: So as this is actually interesting with the way that this ties into spiritualism. And Mm -hmm. I was so excited to spring this on you. Wait, wait, wait. You'll you'll know when you hear it. Okay. So there is uh in from the like late 1800s into the mid 1900s like he was alive 1884 to 1945 was a man named William Seabrook and William mm-hmm. Seabrook was <sighs> here's how he's described on Wikipedia
0: <laughs> loves it you're gonna be obsessed with
1: this if you're not clowning William Seabrook was an American occultist, explorer, traveler, journalist, and cannibal. Born in Westminster, Maryland.
0: Right on. Right on.
1: Okay, so William Seabrook was from this golden age of... of I would say newspaper and book journalism in which that was a time that was like a thing that all educated Americans read and which a lot of popular culture and entertainment was coming out of. So he was able to make mm-hmm. a very successful living as like what we would now consider like an adventure journalist, basically. Like mm-hmm. what now when people go and are like,
0: I spent 10 days getting plastic surgery in Korea. Like I knew <laughs> you were about to say that. Come on. Because I read an article for this called I Joined a Black Magic Cult.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So he was one of those guys. So throughout I – mean, he's also an insane person, <laughs> a terrible, terrible alcoholic, died of a drug overdose. Like – very much in line with Aleister Crowley. And in fact, in autumn of 1919, Alistair Crowley spent a week with Seabrook on his farm, changed his life. He wrote a story based on the experience in a book called Witchcraft, It's Power in the World Today. And that's what launched his career as like an adventure journalist slash occultist. So we really have the Alistair Crowley tie-in. So William Seabrook wrote... Uh, extensively about his travels, his travels to various parts of Africa, including West Africa, his travels through Arabia.
0: <laughs> we love Arabia.
1: We love Arabia.
0: <laughs> it just pretty much goes all the way from India to Morocco. Your guess is as good as mine. I mean, your guess is really as good.
1: He was like, I mean, my man is like full early 1900s. Like, he wrote a book called Air Adventure, where he takes a trip on, like, a blimp from Paris to Timbuktu. Like, you can imagine.
0: I'm screaming. I know.
1: Really iconic. A
0: blimp. Wow. Full choose your own adventure. So he had... had The source of the Nile. Literally.
1: So he had a lifelong fascination with Haitian voodoo. Yes. So he wrote this book called The Magic Island in 1929. This book is all about... Haitian voodoo practice and tradition this is actually not where his cannibalism happens his cannibalism happened before that um and it's sort of outside of the scope but suffice to say he tried to do cannibalism with he got real sick with no with like tribal practice and they were like you're a white guy you're not allowed so he went to a hospital got human meat and cooked it because he was like I want to try cannibalism mm-hmm.
0: You were literally not invited. Right. You were literally deliberately uninvited. They
1: uninvited you to the cannibalism,
0: and you were like, "I'm just a can we me." I, <laughs> I need to meet my Can't uninvite I mean, me. Can't uninvite me. So well, wow. from this, so this book
1: is a, I mean, the way he builds it is a true account of his experiences in Haiti with. I mean, zombies, there are, there are all these recounting of what we've been talking about and of the fears of zombies and of experiencing zombies and zombie ritual. So from that comes a movie called white zombie. Yes. This is a 1932 horror film. It is starring, um, Bela Lugosi.
0: Yes. it is there's always a Bill Lugosi connection (laughs) (laughs) it's an insane movie it's a really good movie I mean it's not but
1: you know what I mean it was critically panned but it's an incredibly relevant example of what they were doing at the time with horror movies it's super over the top it's really wild it's got this like crazy kind of I don't know. It the, sh- the way that it's shot, it looks so. I mean, it's just I mean, it's this movie like pre-code. Like the Cabinet of Dr.
0: Caligari, if you've seen that. Yeah. Like, yeah.
1: It's uh it's closer to cabaret theater than it is to what we consider modern movies, right. but that's what's great about it. And it's pre-code, right? So this is like before they had any form of censorship in Hollywood. So you could just do whatever you wanted. It's really wild. So this movie was like Critically panned. Oh, I did know
0: that. When did Code come out? Um, that is.
1: The 1929 was when the motion picture production company enforced censorship guidelines, the Hayes Code. Gotcha. Is that right? I don't think so. No,
0: 1934. 1934.
1: Um, 1934 is when the Hayes Code came out. So, White Zombie is the zombie movie of the era. And even though people don't love it, it's all about what you're talking about. It's about uh, a white woman <laughs> who is captured and has zombieism forced upon her by a like white plantation owner, hence the title "White Zombie." And the zombieism really plays a secondary role to all the crazy love affair, kind of bodice ripping, falling yes. off of cliffs yeah. that's happening. <laughs> But that, very thing. but that was sort of the imaginary of what zombies were in American motion yeah. pictures at the time. And that's how it stayed for a long time until 1968. And in 1968, Night of the Living Dead comes out. Now, if you haven't seen Night of the Living Dead run Do Not Walk, this movie is incredible. It was a low-budget horror film film. Written, directed, photographed, and edited by George Romero. It made him a legend.
0: It made his name synonymous with zombie. Right. Now, this
1: movie, Night of the Living Dead, is about a group of people uh, in a cemetery who get h- holed up in a farmhouse. They're being chased by ghouls. And they have to fight them off, these zombie-like creatures. are the undead being risen from a cemetery. They have to fight them off. There's infighting within the group. There's infighting within everybody who's in the farmhouse, but they're the living and then they're fighting against the dead. They fight and they fight and they kill them at the very end of the film. Like people are getting bitten. People are getting turned back into zombies. The zombies are trying to feast on the flesh of the living. It's gruesome it's beautiful, it's black and white, it's slow, it's really gory, it's some of the earliest examples of what we consider to be like modern horror special effects. Before mm-hmm. this, it was a lot of like rubber masks and monsters running yes. around and like jumping out of the shadows. This is like the first like blood splatter it's movie. It's like body horror. Body yeah, horror, like yeah.
0: Ripping and tearing. Yeah. Really quick, ghouls for people who aren't huge nerds. Um, in this series obviously we've encountered this a lot where words it seems like we're talking about two different things because they have two different names but they're the same thing and the words have just changed over time so ghouls is a great example of this ghouls up until recently were undead creatures that ate dead things i'd ate flesh ate human flesh um Now we kind of think of them as like ghosts, Mm -hmm. but for the longest time ghouls were what maybe now you would kind of think of as zombies in terms of their physical manifestation and their behaviors.
1: Well, it's so interesting that you say that because in Night of the Living Dead, and there've been interviews done with Romero about this that you can read, in Night of the Living Dead, they never refer to the undead creatures as zombies. They only refer to them as ghouls. And when interviewed, Romero said... I thought zombies were those things that <laughs> I thought zombies were those things that were happening in White Zombie. Like I thought that was what Legosi was dealing with down in Haiti. Like specifically alluding to the fact that he was not trying to create zombies in Night of the Living Dead. And yet, right. because of the commercial success of it and because of the way that it became popular in the culture, these slow-moving, risen from the dead, flesh-eating white people became the
0: pale pale white people
1: became the current vision of zombies now what is so interesting about night living dead and this has been talked about a thousand times i'm not the first or even the like four thousandth person to make this observation but cast in the lead role was a black man an african-american man as they refer to him in all the literature of the time and all of the zombies were white And everyone else in the farmhouse was white. And Romero has made a point to say that he did not cast him because he was black and he did not write the character as a black man. But once he was cast in the part, he did not change anything about it. He just said that he was the best in his audition. It was race blind casting. However, this character, Ben, is, of course, iconically a black man. And part of the reception of the film, the man who played him was named Dwayne Jones, Mm -hmm. Part of the reception to Jones's performance, who was, he was like a classically trained stage actor, and part of the reception to Ben, the character, was that this film, which had all these ghouls, these zombies, stood in for so many different anxieties than the anxieties that zombies had been in the past. It was the reverse of the racialized anxiety of the Americans afraid of ...religion coming out of New Orleans, right? It was the reverse of the fear of the, like, creole forms of voodoo... ...that might, you know, take, like, from from white zombie... ...from this film, that, like, a white woman might be turned into a zombie... ...and controlled by some kind of African religion. It was that this black man is being besieged... ...by these mindless, unthinking white bodies... ...who are determined to kill him and eat his flesh no matter what he does. Determined
0: to consume his flesh... Yeah. Hold on a while, Steve. Bless you. Pardon me. Um. Yeah. Determined to uh, feed themselves off of his body.
1: It seems like, from what you say of the early occurrence of zombie fears in Haiti, like this is an incredibly there's an incredibly interesting through line between those fears and the updated American post reconstruction fears about white zombies
0: yeah it's crazy because it's i don't want to say it's the same fear because that makes it sound overly simple but it's interesting because the roles are different but the the through line as you say can be seen as very similar so still now there are white there are white people who are attempting to, like, eat or control or feed off of the flesh of this black person. And that's now. But then if you, you can read that in the other zombie, in the, in the old or whatever, old zombie fear, as still being the idea that the black person's body is, like, trapped in a cycle of, like, service and consumption under the white person. Right. Even though sort of who's who has changed, there is, like, a very – that's super interesting.
1: Yeah, and it's also interesting to think about how – I mean, a lot of people said that – it's interesting to think about in a larger sense, not larger, but in a not-so-specifically – like skin and race sense but in the sense of like what it means to be a colonial power sense a lot of people read night of the living dead as being about vietnam because this is the vietnam era and because this is one of the first films that showed this degree of violence on screen in a theater and yet this kind of violence was being shown constantly on television and film reels from vietnam Right. So people were being terrified and horrified by this on television as a form of entertainment, but it hadn't yet come to the cinema the way that it did with *Ned the Living Dead. And the kind of choppy black and white distance, the sounds all around, the feeling of being whatever, like surrounded, barricaded, trapped.
0: Yes, trapped.
1: And the idea that horror could happen in your backyard in suburban, I think, Pittsburgh, which is where this was filmed and where these guys came out of. Like that is where the images are being beamed into directly of the Vietnam War, right? I think that it, people read it as like a personalization of that, like a very close, mm. bringing that to the home, like kind of a a how would you call it? I don't know, a Vietnam anxiety, an anxiety, yeah. a, 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 a a displaced anxiety about what was happening in Vietnam and about the right. '60s resistance to the Vietnam War. And yeah. that is something which Romero has claimed actively, that he completely accepts that interpretation of the film and believes that it's really okay. an interesting and valuable interpretation. And so thinking about what it means for the United States and for all colonizing formerly slave-owning countries to be empires and empires in decline and for them to have this like continually omnivorous cannibalistic overreaching international power and how that comes up over and over again in these anxieties about witchcraft and the dead, I think is just fascinating.
0: Last thing I want to say before we leave, we absolutely don't have time to get into this, but re-Vietnam and the dead being all around you. Something that's so interesting about that is that in Vietnam, there's a very good book called Ghosts of War in Vietnam by Quo Nick Han. I guess a good book. The dead are very hungry in Vietnam, in Korea, in China. This is a common thing on the eastern seaboard of mainland Asia. So if this film is representative of... I just don't know how he could have possibly known that. I just think it's so fascinating how these things happen. Not to discredit him, I'm just saying like... No, totally. Totally. That wasn't something that was necessarily intellectually available to Americans at the time until books came out about it later. I just think it's really interesting how, I just think it's interesting how, no, it actually is interesting how, whether deliberately or inadvertently, he brought the hungry dead to America as an allegory. For Vietnam, even though again the roles would be reversed, but it's just like to take that sort of very salient element of Vietnamese death culture. And it's interesting to think
1: about with uh, Haiti and with various other Caribbean nations, which when they were made slave holding colonies, I mean, Haiti didn't hold Mm -hmm. their own slaves, they were colonial outposts, but when they were a spot in which slavery was being practiced, what was happening was they were being used as part of the transatlantic empire economy to mass produce sugar and other crops, Yes, edible crops. And edible crops. it is interesting to think about the sort of symbolic role of hunger and appetite in these hauntings and in yes. the haunting of the American imagination and how it is that sort of an endless hunger can come to represent sort of the worst of, and the most terrifying of, um, like,
0: impulses of empire. And how it can go back and forth. Right. Because who the hungry is depends on who you're asking. And, you know, different attitudes and, and different moments in time. Because that... That mo- moment in time of the transatlantic slave trade very much was, or yeah, very much was, uh, like you just said, uh, the the deep, disturbing black hole, all-consuming hunger of the empire. But at the same time, that structure and that system has left
1: mm-hmm.
0: the people of Haiti.
1: Sort of. I mean, after after the Hungary. yeah, exactly. After the Haitian Revolution, I mean, this is something that we in talked famine. about in the class I was doing. Yeah, in famine, but also still producing because yeah, that was the thing was that, I mean, this has been talked about a lot in the past like 10 years, but the, the fact that after the Haitian Revolution, Haiti continued to owe money and taxes money, to yeah. France and the only way that they were able to enter into a modernized economy, which they were not a modernized economy before their... You know, colonization. The only way to enter into that was with their pre-existing economy that had been built by the French, which was sugar. Yeah. So they continue to be a sugar-producing nation because that's what the colony. I mean, you know, that's what people talk about when they talk about the continued influence of slavery on the economy and on the yeah. economies of Caribbean countries. That these countries continue to have one route to pay their debts, debts that right. were incurred through no fault of their own.
0: Right. Just like Peru continues to produce gold. Mm-hmm. Just like other places in Africa, continue to produce rubber. Diamonds, diamonds, yeah, and everyone's hungry. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna go eat some sushi. (laughs) (laughs) Offensive. Sorry. No, 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 not at all.
1: (laughs) Thank you guys for listening. Uh, My name is. Thank you so much for listening.
0: My name is Gus. Augusta, sorry. My name is Augusta. And this is the Phenomena podcast. And I'm going to be in New Orleans this July, so tell me what you guys want to hear from New Orleans. Oh my god, wait.
1: Yes. Yes. Okay, let's talk about that actually. Let's talk about that.